0: you're listening to an Pavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in for more visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts
1: Welcome. Thank you for joining us this evening um, it's such a beautiful gathering space here at the M Pavilion and I'd like to begin by respectfully acknowledging uh, the traditional custodians of the land that we meet. They are the Boon Boon Wurrung and Wurundjeje Woi Wurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Uh, we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, thank you for joining us for the M Talk. Um, it's called Lost Property and the Challenge of Uncovering Residential Vacancy. Uh, we have a fabulous panel lined up for you here this evening, starting with um, our renegade economist, Carl Fitzgerald. He devotes his time as the director of the uh, Prosper Australia, Director of Advocacy, sorry, at Prosper Australia. And his monthly radio program um, and podcast, Renegade Economists, has been offering listeners critical economic perspectives for 12 years. So, welcome, Carl. Um, Next up, we have Dr. Kate Shaw, a critical urban geographer whose research looks at the culture of cities and exploring gentrification, alternative cultures, and housing markets. Um, especially the distinction between the the use value of property and its exchange value. So we welcome Kate to the panel. Then, to complete our panel this evening, we have Flavia Barar, the Data Science Officer at the Australian Urban Research Infrastructure Network. Her background spans architecture, urban design, planning and development, and specializing in informal settlements. Uh, data curation, and spatial analysis. So thank you for being here, Flavia, as well. Um, So first, how we're going to run tonight, uh, we'll hear from each of our panellists. And if there's any questions or you need points of clarification, then please raise your hand. We're happy to do that. Um, Welcome throughout when we're having our discussions. However, if you have any... If you have any broader comments or broader questions, we're going to open it up for discussion at the end of the panelists' talks, so there'll be more opportunity at the end there. But we welcome your input. So, with that all done, um, welcome, everybody. Uh, We're here tonight because we believe that housing is a human right. And I'd like to open up with Carl and ask, well, you've released the speculative vacancies report from Prosper Australia. Can you tell us more about how that came about?
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it came about because uh, I was cycling into work and my bullshit radar just kept going off and off and off every time I opened up the paper and was uh, surrounded by headlines saying that we have record low vacancies. There's nowhere to live. But as a cyclist coming in from Hawthorne through Richmond, I was uh, struck by how many vacant sites there were. And then we bought our first home over in Braybrook and riding in through uh, West Footscray and uh, took the train past uh, Tottenham rail yards uh, this morning and still some of those sites from 14 years ago uh, are still sitting there. And uh, here we are living in an era where the entire policy edifice of affordable housing is based around housing supply. Supply, supply, that's the key. That's what uh, the Property Council Prime Minister uh, talked about earlier this year. And uh, it's just continuous, uh, this hammering on about supply, but we don't actually measure it. And uh, so... Yeah, there I was, frustrated enough, um, I found uh, a lucky volunteer and we went out on our bikes and counted up all the vacancies in the Bluestone Ward of uh, the city of Maribyrnong in Footscray and that was our first report and uh, it was going to be front page of the age until some late controversy hit but it gave us uh, hope that uh, there was a need for this sort of analysis so this was... Uh, back in 2007 and uh, luckily I had uh, an uber-smart uh, intern with us who said, hang on a minute, let's just use water consumption. So we used water consumption as a proxy for vacancy and, uh, yeah, that, that meant uh, we could cover 90-odd percent of Melbourne's um, residential property. I think it's about 92.1% in our last uh, report. So we're covering 237 suburbs and certainly saved a lot of time in terms of uh, cycling around and counting things. So um, in this world of big data, uh, the potential to analyse this is there, but yet government doesn't really do its job. Uh, And so, yeah, there are a lot of motivations driving that but uh, yeah we've now done 10 of those reports and uh, we like to think it helped lead to the the vacancy tax we had for uh, three years from 2018-19-20 and it's been mothballed now we've hit uh, the pandemic so uh, that was a bit frustrating but uh, there were plenty of problems with that tax design. So really uh, yeah Vacancies are a part of the story, but there's so much more we need to understand when it comes to land and housing supply.
1: Can you tell us a bit more about that, land and housing supply?
0: So uh, the the thing we've realised with our vacancy report is it looks at properties that are measured, that have been zoned residential. So sites that are on the sprawl these big master plan communities, you know, anywhere between 2,000 to 55,000 lots being developed, a lot of those uh, don't turn their water meters on until the point of sale. And uh, if you visit your local master plan community, you'll see that they don't release all the properties at once, which we admit would be, you know, counter to their economic interests, but some of them are up to 180 stages. So they just slowly drip feed these sites out to the market, all the while employing uh, well-paid lobbyists to scream that there's no housing supply. So as we've realised we need to go further up the... the, the Housing production pipeline to really zero in on these land banks uh, because this, you know, we find somewhere between 60 to 80,000 vacant lots, but here we have about 370,000 lots that are sitting on the sprawl. And uh, in 2019, there were 86,000 property sales for the year. So there's there's more room to improve in, in how we do this, and when we look in the city at how apartment sales work, that's something that um, our report has revealed uh, that, again, these properties are staggered out over two to four years, and we just wonder whether the public is getting uh, the best return on investment for uh, this, you know, incredibly altered skyline we now see, and. Uh, I had to read through last year's speculative vacancies report today and noted that uh, during Mr Skyscraper, uh, Matthew Guy's uh, time as planning minister here in Melbourne, between 2010-2014, to 2014, whole skyline changed, you know, all this supply was created, but still apartment prices went up 7.1% in just those four years, 25.8% up till 2019. So the supply doesn't really matter when you have that market power to uh, turn the tap on or off depending on market conditions. So we kind of live in this world of one-eyed supply. Uh, Supply only matters um, in a way, uh, you know, these record low vacancies that keep getting called out um, in the mainstream press are code for rezone my land and make me a millionaire. So they get the rezoning and then they say, ah, the market will do it, don't worry about it, uh, leave it to us and no one's looking at the, the cost of, you know, $500 million goddamn train stations and so forth near these master plan communities. Uh, and, yeah, people are still paying more and more for the housing. There's probably... Plenty of questions around the quality of it as well.
1: So the systems that were meant to increase the supply actually are working not in our favour.
0: Broadly yes, speaking, supply is like uh, the fair weather friend of housing affordability. <laughs> when when times are hot and everyone's you know throwing money at the market, they'll sell you know eighty to hundred uh, properties a month. But soon as uh, things get a little dicey and maybe uh, unemployment's rising, they'll wind that back to uh, seven or eight properties a month and choke the supply, so it puts a floor under the price, and that that dream of housing affordability just we never get there.
1: My goodness, it's a bleak future you've painted there for us, <laughs> or realistic?
0: We'll we'll get to some positives a bit later.
1: Thank you, Carl. Kate, your thoughts on this area? I hear we have 80,000 people on Victoria's public housing waiting list yet, and you know a claim of no vacancy available can you speak to that? Well uh, (laughs) uh, I mean the the question of
2: supply is entirely premised um, on what you build and you can build rich lock up and leave apartments at Docklands and Southbank or you can build social and affordable and public housing. Um, And and, and they are going to be the greater determinants of what is affordable and what is not um, than than just this kind of supply increase. What kind of housing are we talking about? There there are many housing submarkets, of course, as we know. But look, I wanted to talk about um, the economic incentives for property hoarding. Uh, which is, you know, part, part of um, what Carl is talking about, is the, is, 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 a, is, a, is the other side of it, I suppose. The, the, um, the two major incentives, of course, are negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount. So negative gearing is a process whereby if you buy investment property and your rental income from that property is less than your mortgage repayments, you can claim that balance in tax against your income. So you can negatively gear your assets so that you get no income out of it and you can claim the entirety of your mortgage payments out of your income. Um, so there is actually no incentive to rent out your property if you can negatively gear it, right? The other side of that is the capital gains Tax discount. So everybody gets taxed on the capital gain that they make when they sell an asset other than the family home. In relatively recent times, uh, there was the Howard government that brought in a 50% discount on that tax. So now, if you get a capital gain after selling your property, you're only taxed on half of that. The rest of it is tax free. So those two things combined amount to amazing incentives to invest in housing and to churn, to keep on turning it over, right? Because, you know, particularly in a rapidly appreciating market, the, os- the prospect of capital gains is really very high. So you can just sort of keep on doing it. That, in, in, in turn, creates housing instability um, and, and, and lower tenant protections, of course, than is than seen in many European countries. And so we have this kind of crazy process of people bidding wildly at auction, pushing up the prices, forcing out the, um, the first home buyers um, who are trying to get in to, um, to that market for the purchase or acquisition of more rental or investment properties. So the idea of... The the principle behind the policy of negative gearing was to encourage the increase in rental housing stock. Okay, that's good. Um, The problem is that (laughs) because of the... um, the possibility of gaining as much income through the negative gearing that you might in rental income, there is an incentive to keep it empty. Then you don't have to worry about the pesky tenants, you don't have to worry about estate agents, you don't have to go through any of that rubbish. For international investors, it's even higher, that that, that incentive, because it becomes a lock-up and leave. You don't have to worry about any of that shit. You just, you know, it's an apartment, you lock it up. They call it in um, in the UK... Um, the process of buying safety deposit boxes in the sky. Um, And the investors in that kind of housing product, investment product, um, are from the Middle East, uh, from the UK, from the US, from China, uh, from Russia, from every economy that is kind of unstable, in its housing market. so think about the U.S. during the, you know, the GFC and the subprime uh, process. You know, property prices went down enormously in places like China and the Middle East. Um, tax regimes can change, and governments can decide that they're not going to allow money to leave the country, and that, that they and, and, and that they can they can introduce different kinds of um, um, conditions for people with savings. And so there is this really strong. Uh, incentive for people from those unstable economies to get their money out of there and into stable economies such as Australia and Canada, where most most of this action um, that we're talking about now is happening. And again, the investment is not about the rental income, although, you know, that might be nice, but it's not about the revenue stream. And often enough, the problems of tenants and so on is more than you want to deal with. And so lock-up and leave means your investment is unlikely to decrease in value. You may not get a revenue stream, but by the time that you want to sell it, you'll probably make it a capital gain. It will have appreciated in price. So these all combine to incentives to leave properties empty. Um, I just wanted to talk also about... Um, Lending data. So so ABS lending data um, shows that bank lending to property investors uh, in October 21 reached $9.7 billion, which is the highest since 2015 when the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, or APRA, which regulates the banks, introduced restrictions on borrowing, to try to take the heat out of the investment market. So the restrictions included things like um, basically ruling out uh, no deposit loans, no deposit loans being literally that you can um, borrow the entirety. And that was, of course, the um, the basic subprime market that the US refers to that Precipitated the, uh, the 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 crash and and the and, and the GFC, uh, and interest-only loans, um, which are another way of borrowing cheaply. You you can just you just pay interest on the capital um, for you know a fixed period, um, and then if you're lucky, we hope you'll be able to start paying higher higher uh, repayments. But all that contributes to is. Um, much easier borrowing in order to get this this um, this housing asset. So in 2015, these restrictions were imposed. Last year they were lifted again, um, and APRA says it was always because they were always a temporary measure. Um, to just sort of take the heat out of the market. During the lockdowns, the market supposedly um, lost heat, although there wasn't really a lot of evidence of it. But anyway, borrowing is now hitting the roof again um, and, uh, and, and once again contributing to uh, crazy price increases. So uh, the current data on how many of these, improp- these investment properties are negatively geared is not available, but we can assume that the great majority of them are. Um, so. This policy is not only making housing totally unaffordable to first home buyers and, and, um, and, and, and renters, because of course rents go up too, to reflect the market conditions, um, but we as taxpayers are paying for it. So it, to be in shorthand, wealth is being transferred from all taxpayers to those with the greatest capacity to invest in housing. And to further insult, add add insult to injury, a significant proportion of this housing is not available for rent, which was the reason why we had this policy in the first instance. So the reason why we don't know how much of it is empty, as Carl says, is because governments simply don't care to collect the figures. I mean, granted, it's hard to collect, um, data on whether a property is empty you know, for what period are we talking about and, and, and it's certainly easy to fudge but what we have as a consequence is one of the most futile, perverse and morally corrupt policies I would argue that exist in Australia and that's saying something because
1: I think there are quite a few Excellent <laughs> Futile, perverse and morally corrupt yeah, I agree, yes, I think we all can agree, yes Um, Flavia, I heard a lot there what Kate's speaking about um, access to data and the data that we um, need to speak to these problems. I understand you have some experience in data curation. Could you tell us a bit about that? Um,
3: Yes, I can, Emma, thank you. Um, I think um, cities are undergoing tremendous changes at the moment. Our lives are changing. The way we live, the way we want and need to live are changing and we can observe migration from cities to regional areas. And we know that the demand for housing has increased enormously during this time. And so have housing prices. And to the point that um, housing has become unaffordable for a large proportion of people. Um, and it's so hard to access um, a first home for many people. Um, and that's why it's so important to address these issues. And we need to address them through policies. But how can we gauge what's actually going on? Because we are, um, we're sailing through uncharted waters. Pretty much um, all previous population projections um, from the Australian Bureau of Statistics um, we can throw them out the window, because um, this is all new. Um, So how can we drive those policies um, without proper access to data? And that's actually a very tricky part for researchers. Um, I think Kate and Carl, you know how hard it can be to access data. It might not be available, or you have to knock on many doors to get to it, um, whether it's, it's sitting with local councils, with state or federal government, with private companies, um, it's hard to piece the data together, and we need access to it in in order to inform those um, housing policies and create more resilient cities. And um, that's what we're doing at Oren we are collecting the data and also offering um, access to tools, analysis and visualization tools to researchers so that um, they can have the information ready to do the analysis and understand the changes that we're going through and what needs to be done to address and make housing
1: more affordable and equitable for everyone. That sounds like a pretty great organisation, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> panel sponsored by Oren. <laughs> Thank you, Flavia. Um, so, can I put it to the panel for questions for Flavia or questions amongst yourselves before we take it to the floor?
0: Yeah. Um, well, for me, it's it's the data. It, it is that property data gold rush, and uh, investors have locked up uh, our data supply so that it costs us, uh, our little NGO, $6,000 for one spreadsheet of data, 237 rows, and uh, we, we that seriously is a barrier to analysis. So uh, yeah, all this big data is being churned into algorithms with demographics and infrastructure, uh, existing zoning, and spits out the sites that are above 800 square metres where you can fit four townhouses on it and that's where investors uh, throw millions and millions of dollars and it's it's just such a pity that we live within a system where we're meant to have perfect information and just at this point where we get to be able to show people how you know various community efforts within uh, their neighbourhood would affect the value of land, uh, it's, it's been snatched away from us. And uh, you know, I wonder how you live with that frustration, Flavia.
3: It gets tricky um, because data, I mean, Victoria has an open data policy. Um, so theoretically from governments, it is available, but private companies may not want to share and release their data because um, it can be sensitive. It can be sensitive in terms of population, of re-identifying people, or it can be commercially sensitive. So um, if you're a private company, you may not want to release your data and give other companies um, competitive advantage over you. Um, And even if they want to make data available, It can be an enormous process for companies to process hundreds of applications from researchers um, because it is time consuming. Um, So sometimes the cost goes back to the researcher. Um, Sometimes it's a a processing fee of a few hundred dollars, but sometimes it can be in the tens of thousands of dollars. And researchers cannot afford it unless they have a big grant to back it up. But um, that's also an opportunity to get creative with data. And um, while there might not be a data set for rental vacancy available, there are ways to find it out. Um, And I find it incredibly creative how you used um, water data to figure it out. And there's always proxy measures that you can use. in terms of housing vulnerability, that's not um, something that you can measure directly, but you can look at homelessness rate, you can look at um, um, housing income, um, uh, sorry, at um, household income, um, you can look at education level, you can, we even have um, a time series of property data, where we can observe the changes in housing prices over time. Um, but we also encourage researchers to come to us and let us know if they need a particular data set and we can make it available for them.
1: And we should know as well that this um, system that Flavia is describing is ORIN, and we're um, funded by the federal government, so the Department of Education funds NCRIS program that invests in large pieces of e of infrastructure sorry, for researchers to share. So um, if you heard of the synchrotron that's down in Clayton, a huge piece of machinery for uh, scientists to use. Prohibitively expensive for one researcher to find, but you know, we can share it. And ORIN is an e infrastructure that researchers can share to access data. And um, so it's great that we're, we have some federal support in that for our, what we're trying to do there. Kate, can I make a comment just
2: about the sort of data that we're talking about, though? Yeah, I mean, as, as, as I alluded to, I mean, it's, it's, it's very hard to collect anyway. Um, so Prosper's way is actually getting access to um, water company records, um, which you have to pay for, right? You don't have to pay for. I didn't realise that. Fabulous. This is a this is a real issue, though, in terms of, I mean, government departments also often charge um, for access, and so do local councils. Um, and e- even accessing titles offices and such, you have to pay um, often for a title search. So, and, and there are some private companies that, do and don't and so I mean it's terribly confusing across the board. But in any event, the uh, the water records were won in in um, in Vancouver where there's a similar um, kind of issue in terms of you know the lock up and leave apartments in, the, in 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 those great high rises they're building. Um, Um, the residents are now collecting electricity data from the electricity companies after (laughs) having parties kind of going out at night and just looking, you know, at the one building, like over weeks and weeks and weeks and just seeing where the lights were being turned on and where they they were not. So, again, they've kind of got this proxy measure of, you know, how often the lights are turned on. But the fact is that, that this data is not collected. And whilst it might be difficult to collect, there is no... Um, appetite on the part of any government to actually develop a system where that might happen. In in places like Berlin, where this is also a big issue, it's really interesting. Um, The governments rely on neighbours to just tell the local authorities um, when places are empty uh, or if they're being let for too much, um, which is a really kind of weird thing to be happening in Berlin because it's kind of the left... Um, anarchist population mainly that particularly want that kind of data recorded, right? But they are also the most um, fearful and, and, and leery of that kind of stasi, you know, doming on your neighbours thing. So this is sort of very complicated situation there. But basically that's the only way that they can do it either. I mean, it's just like personal networks. So I think one campaign that might really be worthwhile is actually just pressing governments to devise a way, and we can probably, amongst us, in fact, I'm sure, Carl, you have already devised a way that it might be formally collected. You know, it would have to be a certain period. I mean, you know, obviously you can't be counting weekends. Is it six months or a year? You know, Is, is it a voluntary declaration? Well, I mean, whatever. I mean, the thing is that you can work out a system that we could put to government um, as, as a legitimate and necessary data collection uh, point.
0: But even if we had all that data, we had, you know, uh, a button we could press that would show us every vacant property within five kilometres, we still need to apply some market pressure on those property holders to open it up to the market. And so uh, what's needed are holding costs. We need to turn property into a hot potato rather than this uh, huge growing cake that increased by 1.72 trillion dollars last year. Like that's how much Australian land values increased by and the 20-year average you know that, which was growing at around about 8.9 percent nationally was we forecast land prices would increase by 700 billion. So we missed the mark. We missed the market by a whole $1 trillion. Like, that's how crazy this last year has been. And, you know, negative gear and capital gains tax have contributed, but really it's the record low interest rates that have allowed people to buy property and just sit on it. And, uh, you know, interest-only loans, those sort of tools that come on board, uh, you know, the, the ramping up of real estate, uh, I feel like um, it's really accelerating. So uh, for us, what we talk about is um, switching our taxes away from uh, incomes and onto monopoly interests, and land is the biggest monopoly. It's worth $8 trillion now in Australia. You know, uh, the superannuation that we hold in Australia is, one of the biggest per capita in the world and that's only $3.3 trillion. you know. The big four bank licence are worth a trillion dollars each. So it's double the value of an infinite, infinite licence to print money. So it's the most powerful thing and if we don't get it right, everyone's living with these invisible chains, uh, trying to pay these record rents, pay these record mortgages and uh, you know, here we have a Victoria, we've undertaken two big privatisations recently. The Port of Melbourne, $9.7 billion, uh, and the Land Titles Office of Victoria sold for about two point seven, I think. And one of them was to fund uh, our mental health inquiry, and the other one was to fund domestic violence. Uh, and our... Everyone who's living under this weight of incredible housing pressure is, uh, it's affecting us mentally, isn't it? It's affecting those dinner table uh, outbursts that happen after you've been stuck uh, commuting for 45 minutes, um, living out on the sprawl. And so uh, these pressures keep continuing. And I think uh, somehow we need to show the incredible um, efficiencies that could be delivered, A, if we had access to this data, had an improved uh, tax system and could encourage us to consolidate rather than this city that keeps sprawling further and further out. It's not going to be long until Melbourne's hitting Mount Macedon. Um, You know, we just keep sprawling bigger than LA and still housing prices get nowhere and Still, you know, our little NGO hasn't inspired a revolution. But, uh, you know... But people, you're
1: working on it. We're working, we're working on, on it. it. <laughs> and
0: we did have a mini revolution just the other week. We had a big success. We had uh, Victorian Upper House or Victorian Parliament uh, put through the rezoning windfall gains tax. So that was exciting. Finally, uh, Victorian taxpayers are going to get a share of the golden pen tick when uh, farmland gets changed to residential, um, we will get a share of between 50 to 62.5% of that. And we withstood the property lobby and all their misinformation, all their control of the data, all of their dubious numbers that are released without an appendix it's incredible how um, some of our mainstream newspapers quote some of these uh, lobby groups these days. They don't release appendixes. There's no, you know, how did they come up with these numbers? So uh, they lock the data up and then, you know, they kind of... Fab- oh, they say that. <laughs> There's they
1: a lot going things. on, right? <laughs> Multifaceted issues that we're dealing with here. Um, are there any questions from the floor for our panel about anything that you've heard this evening, any comments you'd like to make or perspectives you'd like to share? Yes, you come to the the mic here in the middle. Yeah.
3: Thank you, you. I, I find it very interesting what you said and I remember when I came in 2007, to Australia. The apartment that I used to live in is probably 75% gone up since then. So definitely right. But on a positive note, I was thinking if the hybrid world that we live in now and the opportunity we have now, if that gives an opportunity for people to live more in the countryside and spread out, and if that maybe makes a difference
2: or helps. I was just wondering what you think about that.
1: Yeah, thank you. Movement to the regions, I think we've seen. I think um,
3: the pandemic has put a lot of pressure on the regions because um, if before the pandemic, lots of people were attracted to the CBD for housing and work opportunities and convenience of having everything around and attracting lots of international students and workers that all has changed, it's all gone. Um, And I think lots of people, myself included, (laughs) dreaming of um, having that tree change and living somewhere um, further out, um, being closer to nature, being in a smaller regional area. And that has created a massive shock to regional communities. And um, because locals cannot compete, with the prices that city dwellers are willing to, um, to pay to live in those beautiful areas. And um, uh, there are massive disruptions and um, issues in the community when people who have lived there for generations cannot afford to live there anymore. And... Um,
1: Is it fair to say rapid gentrification of the regions? <laughs> Yeah, not quite it's, it's, for housing. Anyway, key. It it, it depends.
2: It's, it's uneven um, mm-hmm. as as gentrification is. I mean, so look at Castlemaine and Bendigo and Ballarat and, and and the Surf Coast and Inverloch and so on. And yeah, prices are going through the roof. But but um, I think for some smaller towns, it's probably a boon to just have a bigger population and and um, you know more business for those small local businesses, so it's it's, it's highly variable. Um,
0: Kate, how do you see uh, the role of Airbnb scooping up uh, housing supply, particularly in regional areas?
2: Oh, poisonous, absolutely poisonous. Um, and, in fact, an Airbnb is, is, I'm sure, as you're all aware, banned in many cities. Short-stay apartments are just not allowed anymore because, of course, they distort the rental market if, if, furiously because an Airbnb can get so much more rent um, than if that place were on the uh, regular rental market. So,
0: yeah. It it just strikes me, um, one of my good friends is a futurist, and I just wonder why the government doesn't have an economic futurist type department that can actually predict what's coming down the pipeline with... You know, we heard this concept. I think of that's sh- called planning. <laughs> well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But uh, where are we at? Because it's not happening in terms of tax design. You know, it's not, we're not skilling up the public so they actually know what are the good taxes and what are the bad ones. And we know uh, the around Anyone reading The Herald Sun is brainwashed to believe that uh, through the roof house prices have gone up and a family selling their property, you know, hands in the air, but we never get to see those people, you know, crying into their weet uh because of of those housing prices. So, um, yeah, I, I feel like government should be on the front foot a lot further and, you know, it's good federally, the government's trying to do something about taxing, um, you know, the fangs, Facebook, Amazon and whatnot in Australia, But we're not see, it was, you know, with this rezoning windfall gains tax that went through, we had a positive, but in this omnibus bill, there was also a, a big discount for the horror zone uh, that's storming through the Northern Hemisphere, and that is the corporatization of the rental market, where Wall Street now is buying up virtually entire communities. They're rolling out prop tech, they're able to scrape your phone, um, Basically, see who you interact with and, and is your this data the, stream. The
1: Zillow effect.: it's Zillow? Zillow?
0: Yeah. Well, no, this is different. It's um, basically an app where uh, they store your data when you go in and out of the building, um, how many complaints you make, uh, they might have a sneaky little back door into your financial expenditure, so they and wages, so they can see what rent you could actually afford and uh, face scans, heat scans in Brooklyn to make sure you're not illegally subletting. Um, So all of these advantages of big tech, uh, big data and tech are going to the 1% and we need to find a way to reclaim property tech for the commons, for the people, for the community. So that's something I find is really concerning that uh, under this guise of housing supply, We're now going to have these corporate overlords here building apartments uh, telling us, uh, you know, this is your long-term rental. Um, Let's see what return on investment we get for that.
2: Well, I mean, we can get really dystopian and talk about, um, I think it's uh, Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google, um, of course, has been trying to set up smart cities in many places, and recently they tried in, in Toronto, and they, uh, they actually got knocked off by community action, which was pretty interesting. Mm. But their intent was absolutely all of that monitoring. Mind you, I mean, we're monitored anyway, so I don't know. Uh, look, I just wanted to say on the, on the um, I mean, if you've got a credit card, if you've got a Mikey card, it was like, you know, if you've got a phone, you know, they, know, they already know everything. Um, but um, I wanted to say in terms of education, I mean, that's a, really, that's a really problematic one, I think, for, for us or for people who care about the rental market because I think the whole campaign against negative gearing um, and the capital gains tax discount especially, and particularly the discourse that occurred, you know, that was really misinformed but still meant that people started kind of scurrying into Google and, and to their financial advisors to actually work out what these things are, um, you know, during, during the, uh, the, the, the the failed Labor election campaign. I think that the consequence of that is that we have actually educated people as to how to get an unfair tax advantage. So everybody's going, woohoo <laughs> you just need to get, you know, as long as you can get, take advantage of the low interest rates and no interest loan or no deposit loan, you can you know, go and buy an investment property. And I think more and more people are actually doing that. I, 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 my feeling is that the rate of invest, investment properties is increasing um, with time. I, I just want to say, as a, you know, as a complete downer, um, that... that Good,
0: ca- someone's worse than me. Go on, please.
2: Ca- ca- I mean, the, the, the win that you're claiming credit to, I mean, and, and, it's, and it is definitely a win, but... I mean, and this is the way things work. The government has absolutely ensured that that windfall tax does not apply to renewal areas, such as Fishman's Bend, nor does it apply in in, in growth zones, in, in growth zones where all future growth is expected to happen and is going to happen for the next 25 years. So it's like... It's a very well, quality. it's the next the generation they right. setting it
0: up for. The, the right. next, you know, in another 15 years, those land bankers will be the ones that will pay. That's
2: right, that's right. The principle is in there and that's really important. But, you know, I mean, it's lovely to see these little quirks. It just makes sure that it actually doesn't really apply to anybody at the moment. I guess um, what's really shocking for me is, um, because
3: obviously I'm not from here, um, Going through architecture and urban planning school, you study housing in many different forms and you always think of it as a home for people and accommodating people's lives. And what was really shocking for me in Australia is um, the way property is seen as an investment, it's an asset. And that's how it's marketed and that's how it's um, viewed. Um, instead of trying to provide a home for people because that's what we all need. It's a basic human right, technically.
2: Yeah, I I, I kind of see it as the, you know, the end game of neoliberalism, really. This is Thatcher's, there is no such thing as society, you know, just a constellation of individual self-interests. I mean, look, we're always at a turning point, aren't we? But... Is this our turning point? I
0: hope so. Yeah, you always like to think with generational change um, something different will come through. And for me, what's giving some hope is uh, some of the the ethical beneficiaries of uh, Silicon Valley. And there are some... You know, there is some fight back and, um, you know, there's a number of uh, multimillionaires trying to create more sustainable, uh, more financially secure communities and um, the concepts we uh, look at other than, you know, our broad scale replacing income taxes with uh, the property bubble, funding that out of land taxes, would be a community land trust. So this is where a trust is established to own the land perpetually on an affordable basis and then that's just leased uh, from the trust. The land is leased but you borrow to buy for the improvements the house, which is somewhere between 30 to 45%. So you're getting say 65% saving on um, your your mortgage interest and uh, principal repayment, but also importantly, that drastically reduces your deposit you need to get into the market. So so many people are struggling to save up enough to keep up with the deposit increases. Now uh, we need a, a game changer. We need some alternative tenure models to really uh, allow this uh, to to take off. Because really, post GFC. That's been the thing giving people hope in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah,
2: and, 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 and I mean, there are heaps of models, you know. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time in Western Europe, Northwestern Europe, um, <clears throat> and, and the co-op models and, 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 and various kinds of co-housing living. I mean, we have some models here more and more. I mean, the Assemble... Uh, mob and, and the nightingale mob and, and, and the commons. And, you know, I mean, more and more we're starting to understand how these things can be delivered. And they can certainly be delivered without a high deposit um, or, you know, and, and, and um, with relatively low ongoing payments. But I guess I would say two things. On that, we really need um, large institutional investors to come to the party, so not the rights, you know, the real estate investment trusts and and and, and those monsters that um, that Carl's talking about, but um, pension funds. I mean, a, a, as he says, I mean, we have trillions of workers' hard-earned tied up in uh, pension in, in, in superannuation funds that could actually really benefit its members, um, and therefore maybe even increase their contributions by contributing to a much wider Wider spread and systemic form of affordable housing, right? I mean, they can, so, so in, in Switzerland and Germany um, in particular, it's very common for pension funds to just put a large sum of money into the formation of a co op in terms of its development on the basis that they will get a low return, low risk, and, and ongoing secure income stream. Um, so that I mean that's one thing that we can really do. I think we need to get those institutional investors and particularly pension funds, super funds, into into the social housing, especially and co-op market. And we need to be diversifying the kinds of housing that we provide. Uh, so that's already happening, and we can push that. But finally, I think we really do need. Um, well, we need to campaign for better data collection, and obviously the. the the result of collecting data on and knowing about empty properties is that you tax them um, as as we can already um, tax dilapidated properties. Um, So that's one form of tax and then it's about trying to um, raise an ethical (laughs) awareness of the problems inherent in negative gearing and a capital gains tax and and, and, a discount. And and, all of these things form a comprehensive campaign, comprehensive tenets for for a strong housing campaign, which exists in various ways. Um, We just need to get over our Georgist versus Marxist. (laughs) Solutions. Prosper is a Georgist organisation. I mean, a Georgist, meaning it comes from Henry George, and its its philosophy is um, abolish income tax and tax only land assets which has got a very, very good argument. So there are some foundational things, um, and of course Marxist <laughs> philosophers are always about income, right? And about, about the, working, the you know, working people. So well, I mean there Read
0: volume f- three, mate.
2: <laughs> so there are a few fundamental differences that need to be kind of ironed out, but there are really, really good points for strong campaigns and we need to look at where they are and contribute to them how we can, I think.
1: Fantastic! Thank you so much, you guys. This has been a really interesting discussion. Do we we probably have time for one more question from the audience? If anybody has any further questions or comments for the panel, no. Okay. Oh, sorry. Hello, Javed. Yeah. Sure,
2: sure.
1: yeah. Hi. Uh,
4: thanks, all of you. Um, I've recently uh, started working with Oren and it's been on my mind that uh, that data is um, not subjective seems like the wrong word, but uh, it does require like human interpretation and work certainly um, to kind of give that data a a life, as I'm sure you're all aware in in different ways from your own work. Um, But uh, I was really interested in something that you said, uh, Kate, about um, pushing back the expectation that, that vacancy, for example, should be... A metric that's that the government produces and produces more reliably. Um, I mean, the, the vacancy has been something that has had public attention in, uh, at different points in the last few years. And uh, like, do you, do you? I guess do you think like a that you know a campaign for a, a better metric of vacancy is something that could could have mileage? Um, and if it did, what would be important to ask for um, because of those kinds of ways that. I know you were hesitating to use the F word about whether the government was, was fabricating uh, particular uh, parts of it. Like, what, what would be the kind of norms to ask for? Lobby um, groups. Ask for, yeah.
2: I, I think you'd be better off, like, Orin an, and Prosper getting together and actually working out your own metric. You know, I mean, in, in, my, in my in my activist experience um, over many years, sometimes I feel so old, um, it, it's really more effective if you can give them something and i'm sure that you 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 guys and and, and and women have done the research so devise your own metric you know come up with it and and get it out widely and say this is a perfectly reasonable way of measuring and and go to government with that as a you know as as, as a lobbying tool and get people behind it be the change you want to see
1: it's yeah. actually
3: pretty exciting yeah And we're doing this um, at Orion because we are actually struggling ourselves with um, um, not housing data, but building data because it can be expensive and restrictive so that not even we can use it. Um, So we go ahead and create our own where possible and we're keen to pick up on that and see maybe we can actually come up with that metric and collaborate and respond to researchers' needs. So there's definitely um, capacity from our side to do that.
1: We're on our way. Let's end on that high note. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you to our panelists. We have Flavia Barrar, Kate Shaw, and Carl Fitzgerald. We'd also like to thank our um, outreach manager, Oren Lara, for creating this event. And, of course, thank you to M Pavilion for hosting it for us. Thank you very much. Joe, the AV guy. Yay. There he is. Hi. Oh, and to me, I'm Emma Jockin, by the way. I'm the moderator. I didn't even introduce myself at the start. My name's Emma. I work at Orin. (laughs) I was really nervous. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank
0: you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.